Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 9, verse 32 to Acts chapter 10, verse 23. Again, that's Acts chapter 9, verse 32 to Acts chapter 10, verse 23. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, beridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the house stop about the sixth hour to pray and became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Holy Trinity downtown and all who are gathered here this morning. My name is John Dennis, one of the pastors here at Holy Trinity Church. 
And I suppose if there was one person or one inspirational story that captured my heart when I was in high school and college, it was the story of Jim Elliott. Some of you know that name and others do not. He became what was known as one of the Alka Five, gave his life to cross a barrier for the gospel to bring the message of forgiveness to the Warani people. He, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, Nate Sane, and Ed McCauley gave their lives to bring the gospel across a barrier. On October 28th, 1949, Jim Elliott wrote in his journal a statement of faith that has inspired people throughout the decades. Here's what he wrote. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And seven years later, he and those four other missionaries indeed gave their lives in an attempt to cross a barrier for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, as we talked about last week, entering into the kingdom of God involves giving some things up. It involves giving up our self-righteousness. It involves giving our brokenness and our sin and our transgressions over to Jesus. And Jim Elliott's life and the other four was inspiring because he was willing to cross a language barrier, an ethnic barrier, a geographic barrier to see the gospel expand in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in one sense, you could summarize the whole book of Acts, all 28 chapters, down to one very simple truth or statement, which is this, that God loves breaking down barriers. God delights in breaking down barriers. God delights in letting the wrecking ball of his Holy Spirit move within the barriers of our hearts. God loves taking down the barriers that we have created to keep him out. He loves to say, when he looks at the geography of our hearts, mine, mine, mine. With a kind of wrecking ball of mercy, he enters into our hearts. If there's ever anyone who's been demolished by the power of God's merciful love, it's the Apostle Peter, this strong and swarthy fisherman. In God's kindness, after Peter had denied Jesus, God swept away his failure and swept him into his arms again. And in our passage today, Peter, who, who's a fa- who is a failure, who is so utterly redeemed that it's almost beyond comprehension. Think of it. Peter, who had denied Jesus, raises the dead. Peter, who had spurned his Savior, raises a paralytic. And then God turns his attention to Peter's heart. God delights in breaking down barriers, brothers and sisters, for the sake of the gospel. And where where the Spirit of God is at work, no barrier can stand. Where the Spirit of God is at work in power, no sickness will stand. Death cannot stand. Prejudice is broken down. So I just want to invite you into God's presence today. As we look at his word in this text, in Acts 9, 32 to 10, 23. Let's bow our heads and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, amazing how you took the life of Peter, who was so wholehearted for you, 
and broke him down, humbled him, showed him his pride, and then raised him up and exalted him again so that he might be one of your witnesses in this world. And I pray, Lord, for ourselves. I pray especially, Lord, today for those who are hurting, for those who feel like they are a failure, for those who feel distant from you, that you would reverse the failure, that you would break through to the hurt and raise up again and stand us on our feet so that we might see you again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The very first thing I want you to see in terms of God breaking down barriers is that God uses this previous failure, Peter, to heal a paralytic that's in Acts chapter 9, verse 32 to 35. So take a look look at it there with me, if you would. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. The last time we saw Peter was in Acts chapter 8, verse 25, when he had gone to Jerusalem after having visited Samaria. And the persecution that had begun at at uh, Stephen's martyrdom had scattered the believers throughout Judea and Samaria, these two regions. And in the book of Acts, we're in this fringe moment. We're in this moment geographically when the gospel is circulating throughout Judea and Samaria, just as was promised in that majestic promise in Acts 1.8, where God says, please memorize it, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're in Judea, Samaria, just before it breaks to the ends of the earth. Lydda was an administrative area of Judea, and the astute reader of the book of of Acts, Luke's account here, his second volume of history, is would be things like this. Where is the gospel going to go next? What barrier will it break down next? <laughs> or, having known of Peter's history, how will this once failed servant of God, Peter, now serve in the power of the Holy Spirit? And so we come to verse 33. There he found, this is Peter, found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. That little phrase there could also mean that he had been paralyzed and bedridden since he was eight years old. Either way, the point is, is that for many, many years, this man had been unable to move. Imagine this barrier that needs to be crossed now. Can you imagine the atrophy of the muscles for eight years, the loss of muscle mass? The psychological hurt and pain, the depth of disbelief perhaps in this man's life or the sense of self-revulsion, the convincing tapes in his mind that he can't do what others can do. Can you imagine? Here he is lying there, unable to move, perhaps to turn his head slightly or to speak, but never able to go outside and shovel the Chicago snow or to pull water from a well or to touch someone tenderly on the cheek with his hand or to hug some children when they come in the door. 
after playing outside. And yet here's Peter, this swarthy fisherman, this once rebellious disciple who doesn't hesitate, verse 34, goes to him and listen to what he says, so simple. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Can you imagine the concentration it would take to say those words, the confidence? It's not hard to utter them. But the the follow-through is the tough part on uttering those words. At this moment, the apostle Peter, this once broken man who turned his face away from Jesus, is so filled with the power of Jesus that he is able to do the works of Jesus. And as Jesus himself healed the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, so Peter also heals. And listen to what he says. Jesus Christ heals you. And then he says, rise and make your bed. What a mundane commandment. I get it. As the parent of a teenager, this is exactly what every parent would say. Make your bed. Right? But the first thing that Peter says to him is not go and see your family or go give glory to God. It's make your bed, roll it up. He's done with it. No more shall this man be lying upon his bed, unable to move. No more shall he use his bed during the daytime as a place to which to wish that someone would come and be his companion. You see, God has the power within his spirit to break down every barrier. All high school students, go make your bed. And immediately he arose. You can tell that I have a a high school student. And he generally makes his bed. Immediately he arose, verse 34, and all the residents of Lydon and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. I love those words. I love both parts of it. It means that his muscles strengthened. His joints became secure, whatever. And his, the transmission from his neurons to his extremities, which was not working, suddenly began to work. And so everyone at Shirley Ryan Ability Labs rises up on this day and cheers. Healed. This is the Rehabilitation Institute of the Apostle Peter. This is the Rehabilitation Institute of Jesus. And the whole town turns now to the Lord. Oh, for such a day. Why do they do this? It's because if the gospel is for a paralytic, the gospel's for all. This doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, that you and I will be able to heal in this way. God does heal, but not always so dramatically. Listen to the words of Psalm 103 and listen to them as a balm. For your soul, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. The psalmist calls on himself. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Listen, he forgives all your iniquity. Only God can do that. Who heals all of your diseases. 
who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast, steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He isn't going to do it all right now, but he will. Every disease. Do you believe that? Brothers and sisters, leukemia and breast cancer and dementia and paranoia and depression and anxiety and self-hatred will be healed. Why? Because God delights in breaking down barriers in the power of the Spirit. And if the barrier of paralysis is not enough, look at what is next. I love this. I could just imagine Luke with his stylus saying, hmm, that's good, recounting everything that had been done by Peter, and then saying, how can I one-up that one? Sickness, yes, but death. How about death? Yes, God is going to detonate and obliterate the barrier of death. And this is a little foretaste of it. The wrecking, wrecking ball of the Holy Spirit comes through here from Lydda to Joppa. Now, verse 36, now there was, a, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha which translated means Dorcas. Joppa's on the Mediterranean coast. It's about 10 or 11 miles northwest of Lydda. Tabitha is Aramaic, beautiful name. It means gazelle. Love the light-footed imagery here. And Dorcas is just the Greek equivalent. So this woman that's described here is described in verse 36 as a full of good works and acts of charity. This is a woman who is being used by God in ministry to affect the lives of others. And God determines through this failed but restored man, Peter, to raise her up to more good works. Verse 37, in those days she'd become ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to, to, to him, urging him, please come without delay. Hurry, come on, hustle. Let's go. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him into this upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing the tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. That is, they are actually wearing the clothes that her good works had provided for the widows. The widows in that time would have been a, a, a special class of people that were without a primary household. And so through good deeds, Dorcas or Tabitha had been ministering to others. And what Peter does then is he puts them all outside. We don't know exactly why he does, does this, why he takes everyone and, and removes them, but that's actually what Jesus did in Mark chapter 5, verse 40, when he heals another little girl. Uh, Jesus says that, hey, she's, she's sleeping, and everybody laughs at her, and he says, Basically, why are you laughing? And he takes them and puts them outside. But the parents, the, the child's father and mother, um, he takes them and brings them in. And then he takes her by the hand and he says these words, Talitha or Talitha Kumi, which in Aramaic means little girl, I say to you, arise. And the parallel, parallelism here is beautiful. Jesus says, Talitha Kumi, and Peter says, Tabitha, kumi, here. In other words, gazelle, arise. Here God is using this man, Peter, who has been an entire failure, uh, 
in terms of what he had done in denying Jesus, and he is now beginning to use him in a powerful way. It says he knelt down and prayed, and then turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Can you imagine that? Then all the, calling all the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed the Lord and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. I spoke to two congregants just this week who both lost their mothers. They were both believers, but which of us would not turn back the clock to get more time? Who can wipe away those tears that death presents to us when someone who literally is the one who gave life to these sons is torn away? Remember that Jesus told Mary and Martha, your brother will rise again. And I, I read those scriptures with one of the congregants. We were meeting on Zoom. We had a previously scheduled appointment. I read John 11 with him where it says, your brother will rise again. And I just said to our brother in Christ, your mother will rise again. Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov is really aimed at one concept from the New Testament, which is that unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. And Dostoevsky was so overwrought with mourning at the death of one of his children. And on May, 6, May 16th, 1878, Dostoevsky wrote these words. He wrote, my very dear brother, Nikolai Mikhailovich, today our son, his son, Alyosha has died from a sudden attack of epilepsy, which he had never had before. Listen to the contrast. Yesterday he was still merry. He sang and ran around, and today he's laid out for burial. My brother stopped by to see me last Saturday, had been at the funeral of someone whose own son had died no less than two years ago, and now both parents were taken by COVID. Everyone who has lost a child in miscarriage or lost a parent or sibling knows this kind of deep sadness in Dostoevsky writes, I have never felt so sad. We all grieve. And Dostoevsky wrote Brothers Karamazov in part to write Alyosha alive again, to give a scene of the resurrection from the dead, to defeat the atheism which was spreading in Russia at the time and to show a picture of the purity of Christianity when it is true and idealize that it is real. And friends, in the gospel, Jesus is sent as written into history to bear our sins, yes, but also that God might write him alive on the pages of history so that as the pages are turned, Aeneas is healed and Dorcas or Tabitha is raised from the dead. Why? Because God delights in breaking down barriers in the power of the Spirit. God delights in breaking down the, 
the barrier of sickness. God delights in breaking down the barrier of death, and he will one day defeat death when he returns, and a trumpet shall sound, and all the dead shall rise, and those who are in Christ shall be raised up to righteousness and glory forevermore. God delights in breaking down barriers, brothers and sisters, externally of sickness and death, but also internally of pride. And where Luke in his narrative so far has aimed for that external, now at this moment, Peter takes aim, sorry, Luke takes aim for Peter's own heart. God has the power to conquer sickness and death, but he also has the power to conquer prejudice. Think of it this way, friends. God's not done with Peter. He's still got work to do. Yes, he's. Luke shows us the, the power that he has in this moment with the Holy Spirit, and yet there's more internal work that God has to do in Peter's life. He has not given up on him. I think of it this way that God is still in a preparation process for Peter. And if God can use a failure like Peter, he can use you. God is willing to keep working on us. From his jail cell in the book of Philippians, Paul writes these words, I thank my God in every remembrance of you, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Listen to this promise now. Who needs to hear this? And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, God's not done with you. He's got projects to work on your heart. And that's what's happening as he comes to Cornelius here at Caesarea. There's a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Yes, Josh, my 18-year-old, and I had fun with this this week. How would you like to be known as part of the Italian cohort? Not bad, right? Here's what's happening here. The gospel is, it is crossing a very important barrier for the first time. And this Roman centurion, this leader of men, is religious, but he's not saved. He's respectable, but he hasn't been changed internally yet. And maybe that's the case for many of you that you have been raised in, in a religious context or people outside of uh, in your friendship circles would say that you're a respectable person, you try to pray, you do pray, and yet you haven't experienced the cha life-changing power of Christ in your heart and mind. That's what happens here. About the third hour, sorry, about the ninth hour, verse three of the day, Cornelius clearly saw in a dream an angel of the Lord coming to him and saying, Cornelius, and he stared in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial to God. That is, God is hearing those prayers. And so he says, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with another man named Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel of the Lord had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So then we move on to Peter. The next day they were on their journey, verse 9, and approaching the city. And Peter went up on the housetop, flat rooftop, about the sixth hour to pray. Became very hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And then this very strange vision comes. He saw the heavens being opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice that said to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And listen to what Peter says. He says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. That is, the Jews had very specific regulations about what could be consumed. It's what we call kosher today. He says, what he says, I'm not, I won't do that. I won't violate my body in this way. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, let no, do not call uncommon. This happened three times and was, and, and the thing was taken up into heaven. Now, this was wrong to the apostle Peter. It would be wrong from his perspective to eat of this morally or ethically. These are, unclean animals in the new the old testament is very clear about those regulations but really this point here in the vision is not about the animals it's about the people in other words a dead woman is is being spoken of as clean not unclean a paralytic who would be considered unclean in that culture is being considered clean. The boundary that existed between Jew and Gentile here is being shattered. It's hard for the North American mind to conceive of the ancient worldview in many ways. So many changes have come in the last 20 centuries from the discovery of electricity to navigating the moon and perhaps conceiving of the ancient Jewish mindset is even more difficult. Because the Jews have been told on no uncertain terms who were God's people and who were not God's people. The nations or the so-called goyim, the others, were not God's people. And this of necessity created this separation between them and us versus them mentality. This wasn't a mere hypothesis. This was history. It was a reality. The Jewish people extending back to Moses and before them to their forefather Abraham were in no uncertain terms God's people. They're the chosen ones. It's not hyperbole. God told the Jews this on every possible occasion from a mountaintop in flames and with thunder, with a fence built around it. The Jews were told, don't come near to this mountain. They were given a written law, what we today call the Ten Commandments, was given to them on a tablet. God established societal roles to to clarify who his people were, the chosen ones. He gave them prophets. He gave them priests. He gave them kings. And the whole intention was to say, among all the peoples of the earth, you and you alone are the chosen ones. He created rituals to reinforce this. He created a place, a temple, a, a, a city, Jerusalem, for the Jews to find him. The Jews were to be, friends, an object lesson written not just in history, but in history across the globe saying, these are my people. I love this people. So the idea that this created division is without question. The, the idea that this created a sense of superiority is well documented. The Jews were raised to believe we are not like other people. You know, when you're a little kid, you probably said to your parents at some point, well, the parents of so-and-so let them do this. The parents of so-and-so, right? And what's the response of every parent when the child says, 
but so-and-so's parents let them do this, the response of the parents is, well, we aren't so-and-so, and we are not like so-and-so. You see, God, in one sense, this is what the, the New Testament calls the mystery of the gospel. It's like God is a magician with a slight of hand, a trick up his sleeve in history. Yes, it's true. None of that was a mistake to call these people special and chosen. But God had raised them up as an example, as a shining example of his love. He, he married them. That's what the, the Old Testament scriptures say, that the prophets say, the plan, however, was for the, this people to be so at the center of his affection that they one day would tell the world about his affection. So imagine the confusion of Peter or imagine the confusion of the Jewish people when they're told to associate with those they're not told, they've been told not to associate with or to eat what they've been told not to eat or to welcome those they've been told to shun. Why would God do this? Because God delights to destroy barriers. He establishes the barriers to show the circumference of his love, and then he shatters those barriers to say, no, in the way that he loved the Jewish people, he loves the whole world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is the gospel moving forward with barrier demolishing power in this moment. Ask yourself this question. Why would Luke, as he writes this story, take so much time to tell the story of the conversion of Cornelius or the healing of Aeneas or Tabitha? And the answer is this, is because this is the hinge, not just of the book, it's the hinge actually of history and of God's redemptive plan for all ages. This is like a little bit of water spilling over the dam and then the dam itself giving way because the door of God's expanding love for all people swings on the hinges of this story here because once the gospel goes to Cornelius, the floodgates are going to go open to all people. Now, some people today take offense at indicating that boundaries exist of ethnicity, say, or of culture or of economics. But the point of pointing out the boundaries here in the text is the point that Jesus has shattered the boundaries. Today, modern people sometimes say, well, ethnicity doesn't matter. Jesus is the answer. <laughs> and the point isn't that ethnicity doesn't matter. It's that because it matters, we need Jesus. That because there are boundaries, we need the boundaries, not just pointed out or acknowledged, but acknowledged and then transcended and shattered with the good news of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I don't know who you are today listening, but this is a story of welcome. Imagine who is welcomed to church in this story. A paralyzed man is welcome. A dead woman is welcome. The Italian cohort is welcome. The paralytic, the dead, and the outsider are all welcome. Welcome all to the good news of Jesus. Welcome all who will repent. The door has been pushed open. The day of 
Jewish supremacy has been shattered. The day of universal welcome is, is now arrived. Why? To show the multifaceted, unexpected, joy-infused love of Jesus. Luke is trying to show you how big the heart of God is and show you who it includes. Friends, are you ready for God to wreck you? God loves Peter enough to remove his prejudice. And he loves you enough also and me enough also to remove your prejudice. But before God removes it, he identifies it. He shows Peter that it is there. So let the wrecking ball in. God can do anything. He can break down any barrier. And in this text, we see as his mission moves forward to new frontiers, we see his power. We see him cleanse prejudice. Brothers and sisters, what are the barriers in this city that we need Jesus to break down in the power of the gospel? What are the barriers, not just in this city, what are the barriers in your heart and in my heart? This, this strong fisherman has been humbled more than once. And as the gospel expands to the nations, God uses Peter to break down barriers, to heal the paralyzed, to raise the dead, and to cleanse prejudice from his heart. Brothers and sisters, if you will humble yourself, and I humble myself, God delights in breaking down those barriers. God used Jim Elliott and the others to bring the gospel to where it had never been before. But God had to work in their hearts because the growth of the minister is related to the growth of the mission and the ministry. So let God work in your heart this week and have his way. You're not a fool if you give up what you cannot keep to gain what you can never lose. Love you, Holy Trinity. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and that you haven't given up on us. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.